I think that if there's one thing that I would like the listeners to this podcast who are CEOs of clean tech companies to understand is that you have to be laser focused. Be laser focused. You should do one thing fundamentally really well and do it better than anybody else. You don't have to do four things <laughs> to be successful. You just have to do one thing really, really well. This is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. Each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. For the first time in our show's short history, we're going to break an interview into two parts. That's because our conversation with Saluna Computing CEO John Belazer was so rich that we'll devote the first part to John's thoughts on the differences he's seen working in the clean tech sector, as well as how his leadership style has changed over the years. We'll have the second half of our conversation with John in the next episode. Hey, clean techers. You ever hear about someone and feel at least a little bit awed by what he or she has accomplished at this point in their lives? Yeah, I've got one of those folks with me on this episode of Scaling Clean. His name is John Belazer, and he's the CEO of Saluna Computing, which builds modular green data centers that run on renewable energy. And though he just turned 50, John's already sold two companies. In his current role, he's testified before Congress. He's rang the NASDAQ bell. And his speaking and writing have attracted the interests of both new and legacy media, including Cheddar News and the Wall Street Journal. Oh, and I should probably add that he's a thoroughly wonderful human being. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Let's start with your background. How would you summarize your career as a corporate leader? So I've been an entrepreneur now for approaching 25 years. And prior to that, I started at Intel Corporation, where I was a software architect and they're a very large software group. If I were to describe that several decades of professional experience, it would essentially be describing me as a professional who has been fortunate to be right in the middle of big confluences, if you will, waves of innovation going after legacy industries. I started my career uh, when e-commerce was just taking off the internet, as people sort of barely uh, call it now. And every single industry was touched by that innovation wave in some way. Later, I went on to work on the insurance space that somehow was passed over by all of the digitization of content and decision-making and data. And they were ready to receive that. And I built a company that essentially took the big technology waves that took place in other industries and brought it to that very large industry fraught with legacy technology. And then here I am in the clean tech space and uh, I'm bringing a big wave around computing and flexibility and crypto to the renewable energy business uh, where they really need a problem for wasted energy. So I think that the, the, the last few decades have really been, you know, an intersection, you know, a Venn diagram where it's big innovation waves and what new industry can I learn a lot about? If you look back, what in your upbringing set you up for this path? 
You know, I think it it was probably two things. Just growing up in New York City, um, it was a rough and tumble time where I grew up. So that allowed me to to build up a lot of grit in my foundation. Being an entrepreneur requires a tremendous amount of persistence and grit. And uh, I think living in New York in the 80s where there were movies, you know, like Get Out of New York <laughs> that were popular at the time, you know, taught me a lot about sort of how to survive in a tough environment. I think I have an incredible mother who taught me a lot about the importance of bettering myself continuously, the importance of education, and really pushing me beyond where she came from. Uh, she got on a boat and went to the Bahamas to try to find me a better life, and then eventually made her her way here, and you know, brought all of my uh, siblings, and we've all gone on to university and 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 done great things professionally. I think the third thing is uh, I've always had a I've always had a a real uh, penchant for entrepreneurship in some way. I don't know when the bug hit me, but it started in I'm pretty sure it started in high school. That was my first company. <laughs> uh, in a way, um, I was taking a computer class there, and this well, well, you've already said how how old how old I am, but at the time it was um, they still had many computers in the room. And you had to write your program on the computer and then save it on a large floppy disk. And they gave you the first one. <clears throat> and when that filled up, you had to figure out where to get another one. You can either buy it from them or go source it yourself. And somehow I got this brilliant idea to save up some money with the help of my older brother and go out and find the floppy disk distributors and found one that actually made colored disks. You can get red, yellow, green, blue. And I bought a whole pack of them and then I brought them into the classroom. And instead of selling M&Ms <laughs> or Girl Scout cookies, I was selling floppy disks to the to to different grades uh, taking the computing class. And that just, you know, it just never stopped after that. I was just always looking for opportunities to build a company. Tell me about the first time you were somebody's boss. What were the mistakes that you made and what were the big lessons that you carried forward into the years that followed? Uh, the very first time I was somebody's boss was in uh, my first company. I was still uh, fairly young when I started uh, Theory Center, which was a e-commerce solutions company, and we started building out our management team beyond our founding group. We weren't bosses of each other; we were colleagues, if you will. But we started hiring professional managers because all the VCs told us go hire professional management. <laughs> and so, ninety percent of the people we hired were were older and more experienced than us. And I had a COO who actually we stole from one of our partner companies. And it's funny, the partner company eventually bought the company. This person had built hundred plus million dollar businesses in the US, had built you know very large teams. And he always told me that he learned something from me because I was constantly just, you know, pushing and teaching him about sort of what our business is and what we did. But I really didn't understand what management uh, was about. I've, I definitely got a, a real view and inkling into it. Uh, during my experience at Intel, they spent a lot of time training people how to be managers. And so I had some of that DNA in me. But one of the things I made a lot of mistakes around the fact that I didn't feel it was important just because this person was so senior to spend time with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis and learn from them and have them learn from me. Uh, that was one one mistake. The other was missing how important it is to 
invest time in going out and what I call, you know, doing random walks through the floor and learning from people and learning what was going on in, in the business and where our challenges were so that I can best uh, make decisions in my role as uh, CEO. And so uh, today I spend an inordinate amount of time making sure that people who work for me, uh, we spend time together so I can uh, learn from them and vice versa. We can solve problems together. I encourage them to pull me in when they really need some help solving a major issue because I, my role is really to remove obstacles for them. And that's the one key thing I, I, I learned as being a leader and manager is that, um, you know, managers and leaders really aren't about, you know, ticking and tying and making sure that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's really to coach people uh, around what they're doing and help them do it better every day. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. I spent a lot of time just randomly calling members of the team and saying, hey, it's me, John, how are you doing? <laughs> how can I help you? What can we do better as a company? Uh, so those are all things that I've learned through painful experiences uh, leading people in, in different situations. Let me follow that up with just a, a practical advice seeking question here. So in a remote, mostly or only team, Mm -hmm. post-pandemic, how are you walking around the halls, so to speak? Uh, good question. Uh, so we have lots of ways to communicate with the team. We have a Slack uh, system, and that's how most of the interactions of the of the distributed team happen. We have stand-up meetings that happen just about every day. So people show up to a Zoom call for 30 minutes, and they're just giving a sort of check-in on themselves and what the highlights and lowlights from the past day have been and anything the rest of the team needs to know that's proven to be very helpful. And I will often Slack people or text them or call them and say, how are you doing? <laughs> Just check it in. How are things going? How are you feeling today? What are some of the big challenges you're dealing with right now? So I try to carve out time at least once a week to, to call someone. And usually I'm doing it during my daily walks, I take uh, daily wellness walks. I'll take a break from the mm. screen. And then I, I randomly dial someone either directly in the company or beyond just, you know, providing some support to folks. So that's uh, how we do it. Do your employees have regularly scheduled one-on-one -on -one times with you that are that occur on a set basis? Yeah. My, uh, my senior staff, people who report directly to me, do you have uh, regularly scheduled one-on-ones uh, with me? And um, I make it clear to them that that meeting is really their meeting. And so if I'm, you know, lax about it or missing it, they've really got to keep the pressure on me to maintain it. Thankfully, I have a really great assistant now who helps me to make, make sure I maintain those. They're so important, uh, as I said, to ensuring that the team is working really well together and making the progress that you want them to make. Those one-on-ones are a great way to engage together and learn from each other. You've touched on the answer to this question a bit, but perhaps this is a mixture of summary and expansion. How would you say you've changed your leadership style over the years? And are there three things that you know about leadership that you would go back in time and tell your younger self? Well, I would say that if I went back in time to tell myself, what the important things are uh, about leadership, 
The first thing I would say is leadership is about people. It's not about your title. So if you're given a title and it says you're the boss, doesn't automatically make you the boss or make you attractive to people to follow. You have to, as you're sort of walking and 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 heading in that direction, you have to learn how to look back and make sure people are actually following you. So that means you've got to re- become really good at setting direction, uh, communicating consistently and um, persistently to uh, teams to help them understand where you're going. And then you have to become a resource for them to help them to uh, really uh, solve problems. Most high-performing teams and high-performing people actually find find joy in their job when they're um, solving problems. If people come to work and there's there's nothing there's nothing there's nothing gnarly to work on or you know challenging to 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 uh, crack the code on. It actually isn't a very joyful experience, and it's very hard for people to to achieve flow. And mm-hmm. so, as a leader, the goal is to make sure that the team is constantly challenged and is growing. And uh, and I think the last thing is that leadership is not about me at all. You as the leader, it's really about the other people. So you should always be looking outside of yourself and making sure that you're coaching folks and helping them to grow and improve what they do every day. So looking back, it's, it's, um, you know, leadership is about people. Leadership is about setting direction. Um, it's not about your title. It's about, you know, getting people to follow you. You know, leadership is, um, it's about looking outside of yourself and becoming more of a coach and leadership is about a selfless, uh, servant, uh, leadership for the team, helping them to grow and expand. The, the more successful they are, your team, the more successful you are as a leader. Tell me about your mentors, the most important ones, and what did you learn from them, either bulk or individualized? Uh, I've, had, I've had several over the course of my career, and um, what I have found is in my early days, so my mentors were professors and um, teachers in high school, and what they helped me to do was to uh, grow up, you know, find, you know, my my sort of um, uh, t- target for the to start the journey. So they were always pushing me to, you know, go to the best schools, um, go to after school programs to expand. Like what we're, we're, you know, our curriculum here in the New York City public school system is just not enough for you, John. Like you need more to fill that brain of yours. So they would constantly push me to go um, take extracurricular courses, enter science programs, et cetera. And that was very uh, gratifying for me because it, it really did help me to find outlets for, you know, the busy mind that I had constantly wanting to learn. As I um, made my way through university and started out uh, as a young professional, uh, my mentors were really about helping me understand the business world. What is politics? <laughs> How do you uh, learn? How do you work through the system here? What are going to be the important things to help you grow uh, within this environment? And uh, who were the key people 
that you should get to know within that organization. Intel was a very large enterprise, um, fairly utilitarian and flat for the most part, but it was really important to have cross-functional integration and um, mentorship was key to that. And it was a fairly homogenous, I'd say culturally homogenous organization. So being a young African-American professional in an organization like that for the first time was was jarring. It was far away from home. It was like the first time I actually left New York to go work someplace. And so um, there's a lot of uh, personal uh, challenges and development to, to work through that. In my entre- in, During the entrepreneurial period, um, it was really about uh, learning from prior entrepreneurs. Most of my mentors were people with scars and experiences in both successful and unsuccessful companies. And I would spend a lot of my time just talking to them. You know, my first company, I didn't know how to raise capital. It was a lot I didn't know, literally knew nothing, which is no surprise. It was my first. And you know what I did? I There was a Cornell directory. I went to Cornell undergrad and grad. And I looked up the directory and I found every single um, CEO in the Boston area. That's where a company was based. And I l- just cold called him and I said, can I please have, you know, 15 minutes of your time? I'm a, a Cornell alumnus. I'd like to pick your brain. I'm, an, I'm, start, I'm running this company and there's so much that I, I don't know. And I think I can learn a lot from you. And many of them called me back actually. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount from those conversations, I would go to their offices. And first of all, I would be like, wow, this is what a company actually ultimately looks like. This is exciting, you know? <laughs> and then they would tell me about their challenges and uh, and I would learn from them. And today, uh, a lot of the mentors that I uh, work with are either teaching me about the industry that we're in. So there's a lot I don't know about renewables. And so I, I really work with folks who are experienced professionals in this space. You, you are among them, Mike. And I also um, work with uh, one very successful uh, public company CEO, and um, I've really gone to him to help me with my personal mission and to grow as a leader and to really understand what it means to run a large, uh, successful public company. So that's the tool of my mentor mentor experience. (laughs) I like it. The Mentor Museum. Yeah. What drew you to renewables? And once you got there, how have you found that running a clean economy company is different than leading companies in more mature sectors or at least sectors that aren't disrupting an incumbent sector within a mature industry? So the first question, I got into renewables uh, when Michael Teporek, our uh, Holdco CEO, our parent company CEO, uh, invited me to become the CEO of the early form of Saluna. And the early form of Saluna was a development company. We were focused on building vertically integrated uh, projects in Northern Africa. We had a really large wind farm. The The project was stranded. It had a 70% uh, capacity factor. So for our listeners that know what that means, you know what I'm talking about. That's a lot of you know, energy firepower, but it was stranded. There was no way for the electrons to go. And we had to figure out how to monetize the energy until the grid made it, made it there. And computing was the solution we came up with. So I was asked to become the CEO because Michael, trust me, he had worked with me before. 
Uh, he saw me learn industries I didn't know anything about. And I believe he realized that the company that they now were focused on was a technology company more than a, a energy development company. Once I got here, though, <clears throat> I didn't know much about the industry. I was excited to learn something new. I had just finished building a successful company in the insurance space, and I really didn't want to go back to doing insure tech things, even though the industry has just exploded since I've left. And I wanted to do something new. That must be something about my DNA. I'm always super interested in, in, in building new things. And what I learned very quickly was how unbalanced renewable energy and its penetration on a global basis is, how hard it is to do here versus elsewhere. And uh, the last thing I learned, which is kind of similar to my past experiences, is it's, it's a huge industry, massive. I mean, it, it has global reach, amazing amount of capital goes into it, and it actually drives a lot of the economy of, of the planet more than we realize. But it's a very small community. You know, if you know one one person, you probably know fifty people. It's it's such a integrated network of people who are pushing to build things in a tried and true way. So your question about you know what's it like running a clean tech business in an in an industry that looks like what I just described, it's actually very challenging because you're playing the innovation game. I've been playing the innovation game, as I said, for. 25 years. And in that game, what you're trying to uh, do is sh reshape people's perception of the world. You know, things are like this now, you know, things have changed the way, you know, uh, the energy space is going to look in the future is going to be different than it does today. And the technology elements to that are going to be important. The keys to success are, have completely shifted on you. And if you want to stay in the game, you've got to shift the way um, you're looking at it. This concept of reshaping people's views and helping them understand that the game has changed is is a um, uh, good good uh, buddy of mine, Andy Raskin, calls it strategic narrative, where you sort of help people understand how things have changed and how you're doing it is is uh, the right way to do it going forward. The interesting thing is that um, in industries, you know, like uh, clean tech, there's just so much um, jadedness, <laughs> I'd say, uh, around new, exciting technologies that could reshape the industry. And people tend to not attach to those very quickly because there have been so, so many failures and the industry has evolved quite well without <laughs> the benefit of some of these things. And I've experienced that before in the insurance space. Um, they have the luxury of pretty much existing for over a hundred years now and never really going out of business as an industry because what they do is so important to the global economy. And so if a new wave of technology comes, it's hard to convince them that it could kill their industry, even though it very well can. And uh, you've, as an entrepreneur in an environment like that and like the renewable space, you really have to um, focus. So what you're doing has to be clear. Uh, you have to advance, make small inroads, and then build on those inroads and really have to do that 1% a day. And over time, it becomes a, a, a snowball, essentially. And you never, 
ever stop. <laughs> you have to keep pounding in that there's this problem. And if you don't solve it, you know, the industry will have an issue. Now, everything I've just described is actually no different than in other industries. It's just that other industries tend to be more wired for accepting innovation because, you know, the competitive environment in that space requires it. Like the FinServe industry is constantly looking for the next great technology that will give them an edge, right? Because their whole business is driven around doing the moonshot thing that drives their financials and gives them alpha and so forth. And so when we were selling into the enterprise, that was really what our pitch was. You know, you can gain an edge from your competitors because this technology is going to give you that edge. And so that's the key difference is the DNA of the industry. You have to sort of understand what that DNA looks like and then change your approach to how you drive innovation in that industry as an entrepreneur. So I'm hearing two interesting things. One of them is a primary difference in running a clean economy company is the greater proportion of CEO time and energy investment into delivering strategic narrative on a constant basis. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And then the second one, which is really interesting, is despite this industry or really these many sectors that make up this new industry, mm -hmm. you are encountering an adherence to conventional wisdom. And one would think, well, you're relatively new mm -hmm. and you are disrupting. You're not a new industry. You're a new sector within industries dominated by very mature sectors that can see you coming, can manage the disruptive threat that you are, mm -hmm. you are still encountering conventional wisdom. Is that correct? Absolutely. Wow. I was in a, I was in a conference in Austin and uh, I was on this panel and uh, we were talking about how to deal with the challenges of renewable energy congestion on the, on the, on the, the, uh, the grid and uh, curtailment, all, all of these things. And we had a great uh, moderator and he sort of, you know, set up the question for everybody. I noticed two things immediately. Number one, this was not the first time that this topic was <laughs> on deck for the conference. And, you know, it, it was sort of like an eerie reminder of, of conferences I've been to in, in the insurance space where, you know, the industry talks about their back pain persistently. And the second thing I noticed is that everyone went to the default solution that everybody is sort of well aware of, right? That batteries and transmission are the only solutions to that problem. And when I introduced what we were doing at Saluna, it was almost like I was, you know, introducing the cure for cancer. <laughs> and it, it was just like, you know, completely hard for people to fathom that. But once they got it, it was sort of like a you know, how, how could I, how could we not have thought about this? And I got lots of folks, you know, becoming my fans after, after the, the, the deck, but I think it's just because I don't come from the industry. So I'm not, I'm not biased or shackled by the perception uh, about what can and can't be done. And that's what innovators are unique. That's a un unique role we play, right? Especially folks who don't come from the industry. And the role we play is, you know, we take a fresh look at things. And there's, I suppose there's one more subtlety I want to draw out, which is I'm hearing you say that the source of conventional thinking 
by definition, cannot be the longstanding tradition of that conventional thinking because most people in the industry haven't been in it for very long. And the industry really isn't much older than 20 years, even generously defined. So what I'm hearing you say is, from what you can observe, the conventional wisdom that has people gravitate toward groupthink is more derived from painful failures of companies that they have witnessed within their sector more than, well, we've always done it that way because the always really isn't very long in clean tech. Is that accurate? Yeah, you're right. People gravitate to the safe choice, the, the choice that's not going to get them fired. And there's always something new and shiny that comes up that says it's going to you know, reshape and change the world. And sometimes it doesn't. And that leaves a bad taste in you know the mouths of the existing companies and incumbents and so forth. And that could have, you know, knock on effects for future inno innovation that could be successful. Mm. <laughs> it just keeps, you know, uh, making it harder and harder as the industry matures, you know, uh, as I said, people become more, more jaded. And so they will rely on the conventional wisdom, what their peers can accept and, and support. And that's the, the modus operandus for, for these industries. And, 20 years is long enough to have built up that, you know, some of that callous, callousness, if you will, and, mm. and, uh, and knee-jerk reaction to just dismiss new innovative opportunities. So as an innovator, you have to recognize that the Lindy effect, which is this concept of, you know, the longer something is around, the longer it will be around, and it actually multiplies every year that it's around. <laughs> and so if you have a piece of technology that's been used for, you know, certain number of years and the longer it's being used, the harder it's going to be to replace that technology because people just assume that that's just the way you do things. <laughs> and innovation is really hard to sort of overcome that. Our thanks to Salunit Computing CEO, John Belazer. We'll have the second part of our great conversation with John in the next episode. This is Scaling Clean, a production of Tigercom, and I'm Mike Casey. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to our show free anywhere you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.